Welcome to Design Talk. I'm Alan Higgins. This recording is part of a series of conversations with Liam Bannon, Professor Emeritus and founder of the Interaction Design Centre at the University of Limerick. In this episode, we talk about Mike Cooley and his legacy. Mike Cooley from Toome, County Galway, an engineer, academic, trade unionist, socialist and activist. As a commentator on labour issues, Mike was once a familiar voice in the Irish media. So what was your connection to Mike? I think I met, I can't remember the exact years, but I believe it was in the early 70s when I was an undergraduate student in UCD studying computer science and psychology. And I also helped instigate a group on the philosophy of science and history of science. And again, I'm afraid, um, without having detailed records, I'm not sure whether I happened to just be at a talk he gave or we had something to get him to come. But by whatever manner or means, I ended up listening to Mike Cooley. And listening to Mike was quite an experience. He was an extremely good orator, very um, eloquent and impassioned when he talked. And so I was left as a young undergraduate um, with a quite strong interest in what he had to say, which was basically about the way in which we think about technology and society and the way in which we need to build on human capabilities uh, and expertise along with technology. He was not against some, in some general naive way about technology being problematic, although it was, but rather he's talking about how we should be able to think differently about technology and com computers and not just think about them as substituting for human skill and labor. I guess his kind of Marxist background, his interest in, in human labor and technology came through. But anyway, I was very glad that I had that opportunity to listen to Mike at that time. It strikes me his, his vision was a more positive one, I think. He was looking for technology to be developed in conjunction with work, with people, the users. Yeah, well, I think, again, he was, his own training um, or education developed in the way of craft, uh, of engineering, I believe, in Germany. And then he was working in the English manufacturing design industry. And when he then went to work at Lucas Aerospace, and that's where he became a very well-known figure, not just in trade union circles. He was shop steward for the Lucas Aerospace Group. But when Lucas started having problems, employment problems, he was one of the forerunners of the group in Lucas, the unions to actually propose alternatives to develop socially useful products rather than the technology enhancements type systems they've been designing. 
And of course, he was also a fly in the ointment in, in Lucas, and they didn't look too fondly at that. So, so that's kind of the subject of his book, Architect or B, The Human Price of Technology, isn't it? And, and it includes in Chapter 8, The Lucas Plan. It's a relatively short book, but it's kind of a manifesto for his thinking around how technology should be designed. Yes, I think it was more, it was in a sense, a, an early cry, cri de coeur, if you may say so, of um, a concern with society and technology and the human role in that. So that, in other words, the societal transformations that are were happening, the way capitalism, global capitalism, is really what he was railing against in the sense of the fact that that technology was being shaped through these global forces of production in a way that were inimical to human interests and needs. And so what he was trying in, in his own way was a call to arms in a way, a call to people and to students for an alternative approach, which didn't just look at technology as substituting for human skill and expertise. He had this um, love and interest in human crafts and skill, and he always had that in his, in his work and in his uh, concerns. So even when he became interested at times in AI issues, he always had a sense that there should be ways in which we could utilize some of the issues around AI, but not in the more negative, closed fashion that some people thought about machine intelligence. The systems approach, he saw the user or the person, the worker, sort of central to technology. He did, yeah, but he did. And in actual fact, in the, I think it was the late 80s or so, there was a, an interesting EU project called FAST, F-A-S-T, which stood for Forecasting and Assessment in Science and Technology. And that project or program funded a number of different uh, projects, some of which were conferences about the future of work, for instance, about the future of technology and work. And uh, actually, some people in Ireland in the MBST um, were involved in a conference on, on some of those fast issues on information technologies in the way of life. Ursula Barry, myself, and Mel Healy. And uh, we had a conference in 1981 in Dublin on these themes of work, labor, and technology. Don't believe, actually, not sure why, but Mike himself wasn't, I believe, directly involved in that conference. But um, as I said, we were, a number of us were aware of his, his work. And later on, when I was working at the University of Limer, he came to visit several times, both as visiting speaker and also as an external examiner 
when I had the opportunity to meet with him and also let him know that I, how much I appreciated his contributions and also in some of my own uh, writings and essays, I very often make reference to Mike's inspiration and his Architect B book. So, his goal is not simply to highlight the political implications of new technology as a thing, but to prompt us to get involved, to take responsibility for the process. Yes, but it's difficult. I mean, it depends on what society you're in. Because remember, um, if I recall correctly, I mean, Mike ended up more or less being fired from Lucas Aerospace for his political views. Um, despite the fact that many people have found a lot of innovations in that work that he and his group developed, he did get to try and involve people in other ways with the Greater London Enterprise Board. But in effect, at times he's been, yes, quite sidelined, I would say. He's not a, you know, because some of the the politics of his his thought and his talk and his work was not necessarily amenable to certain of the powers that be. So there's different ways in which people engage. I guess the point is for, because Mike was originally an engineer and came with that craft instinct and respect for human knowledge and expertise in the labor processes he was involved in, he was always trying to think of how the technologies could be brought to bear and to add value so that people could work in a better way through the technology. But in many cases, there are strong forces, I would say, which have pushed in another direction and have moved. And that's why I, I feel very upset sometimes when you have some people talking about technology and society issues and people saying, oh, technology, you know, it's whether we, the problem is people may use it for good or ill, but it's basically the human who is deciding on, on use as if somehow what technology itself is a process, the technology is sh shaped and fashioned and made by, by people, by the society. So it's not technology and society, in a sense. That's, again, a label we use, which probably is, doesn't, it lacks insight in what we're talking about. To your point that um, it's not technology separate from society. It's interesting that the scientific journal Karimjit Gill founded in 1987 inspired by his collaboration with Mike Cooley on the Greater London Enterprise Board, that they titled it AI and Society, and that it was intended as a counterbalance to the prevailing techno-determinism of the time. Well, personally, just my own personal say, I mean, I'm happy about that social issues were to the forefront of the journal. To me, it's not really about AI. Well, of course, it's interesting now that we're speaking today in 2023, the prevalence of everyday talk about AI and the 
prophets of doom, etc. The technology is different, of course, and the, the technique is different. I was involved in the early 70s at the time of an earlier epoch of AI and society talk in the 70s. It's a different technology. I'm not saying that machine learning as it is today is the same as what AI was in terms of the kind of machines that we were talking about then. But I am saying that a lot of, there's still a huge amount of hype around this idea that machines per se are going to dominate society about a lack of understanding of what is a machine and what, how do we make machines and what meaning, where meaning occurs in the making of machines. Humans make meaning. So machines can manipulate symbols, but what those symbols mean are made and what they have, where they have value and where there is wisdom, a word that Mike Cooley often responded about, the lack of wisdom in some of the things that we're doing. And that's what, when we sometimes think about humans, uh, about humanity, that what is it about humanity that we want to pay attention to? It's the wisdom that we have and also the caring and the emotional qualities that we have. I mean, one of the most frightful things that are prevalent, to my mind, in recent times is this talk about robotics and care robotics. The notion that we can build robots. Certainly we can build robots that will be able to pick up your mail or deliver an object to the microwave or to your armchair. The idea that that subsumes what it is that a human care does is frightful in the loss of meaning. The notion of what people do on an everyday basis, and given my recent medical and health uh, issues, I've been dealing with human carers on an everyday basis, but caring is something that people do. It is not what machines do. Caring is done by people who have a human empathy and care. That's not what we should be doing or trying to make so-called care robots. To my mind, it's, it's, it's actually ethically immoral, actually, in my view. It strikes me that it's timely for us to um, recall or re re remember or relearn that these technologies, these the computers, these uh, devices are tools that we control, we use, whether we've participated in their design or not, that we, we use them, we employ them. Yeah. What was it you wanted to say about uh, the notion of a tool? I wanted to mention the philosopher Albert Borgman. Uh, he's somebody who writes as a, in the field of philosophy of technology. What I like about it, Borgman very briefly has a separation of the notion of certain technologies that are 
kind of focal things and other things that are devices. So devices are things that kind of disburden you of, like the machine takes something, some task away from you, so you no longer need to bother with it. However, focal things are things that you attend to, that in a sense you still work with. So he talks about certain kinds of heating devices that you can control as distinct from a central heating system that is automated. But the notion of focal things and focal practices is he's saying this allows a space for using the technology. So it's utilizing technical capability, but it's ways in which you are still engaging in the process. And in that sense, I think it links, it allows me to heart back to Cooley's interest in those sort of practices as distinct from this machine robotic paradigm which tends to try and put the emphasis on inside the machine that is closed off and doesn't inter engage with you. It's just something that is used being unburdened of in a way. And so I think there's some very interesting ways of thinking that from Borgensberg, which I'm which I and some others are starting to engage with. At a more fundamental view, I guess I've talked about it over the years, has been augmentation, not substitution. In other words, we can talk about developing technologies to augment human capabilities, working with people, but substitution, this other model, which has been the dominant one in terms of uh, machine intelligence, AI approaches, the idea, there's always this attempt to, you know, get rid of, for some reason, the human, or make it invisible. And what is interesting, in my mind, is how, you know, we can't do without the human. You know, humans make all of these machines we're talking about, all of these glittering, clamorous systems, are ultimately designed, programmed, built, implemented, operated by people. I mean, I have some other background in terms of talking about tools and artifacts in the context of the evolution of the human species and Soviet psychology, which works on the way in which people like Vygotsky talk about language as a tool. So there's quite interesting ideas about how humans develop tools in a society, not individually. It's something that's societal also, which is something that when we look at some of our traditions, especially North American product development tradition of a lot of focus in HCI, for instance, on, uh, on the individual. It's another side. I mean, a part of what I became interested in, the whole field of what's called CSCW, or computer-supported cooperative work, was the idea of talking about tools for communication and communicating with others, not something you're doing alone. And so we sometimes 
forget this. Part of the reason that Babbage never got to build his full engine, difference engine, or one of his machines, is he had to work closely with locksmiths, metalsmiths, these craftspeople. Their capability was a key component in building complex systems. Yet sometimes this gets washed out in the history of the development of sy systems, just like female calculators get wiped out in terms of all the work they did in building and computing. They were the original computers in the, during the war. Uh, what do you think has been Mike's legacy? Has he had a lasting impact or is his impact and legacy yet to be discovered? Yes, the latter, I think, in the sense that if I mentioned his name, which I had times when I'm in Ireland, I don't hear very many people mention. Of course, he didn't spend very much time um, in Ireland in terms of working with people or on projects here that I'm aware of. We do now have the archive of his papers at the Waterford Institute of Technology, so I hope some people will be able to look into that work. I don't see his name or approach brought up, perhaps because while he has written articles and papers and books, he hasn't been seen as mainstream. And also this talk, because he's at times talking, he mentions the word political, you know, issues that are, some people feel are awkward to touch on even. Many people keep away from them. And then at other times that people think people haven't really spent the time or come across some of his material. And it's a shame because, as I say, the one thing that I would say most especially about Mike and my few meetings with him is what a, a person, a genial person he was at a human level, a very forthcoming, very helpful to students and anybody who he came across who had questions and queries, but also the, the way in which he spoke. He had a, a marvelous, a marvelous speaking voice and a real empathy. And he also had a sense, you felt he cared. You felt he cared about what he was talking about. Unfortunately, I didn't get to see him in his last few years, but I, I do, I am left with his legacy, with this incredible warmth and strength and power of vision way back in this first talk I heard that he gave a new CD back in the early 70s. Well, I think um, he, I think, speaks to perhaps a new generation if we can interpret his work in that light uh, in terms of how to design and apply technology and tools for human advancement. Thank you for listening. The music used is Voltaic Fluctuations by Ben Prunty and used with his permission. 